Okay, Matthew chapter 6 from verse 25. Verse 19. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Just continuing on, uh, chapter 6, 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thanks very much, guys. Um, Gosh, it is a bit distracting, isn't it? You'll think I'm coming up to some climactic point and then it'll just never come. Oh, well, that's that, isn't it? Um, hi, I'm Des. I'm one of the student ministers here. Um, why don't I pray before we come to listen to this pretty countercultural bit of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, shall we? Um, so please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you do speak to us. Please help us to listen. Amen. Well, if you're a note-taker, tonight's sermon is entitled, Money, a Good Servant, but a Bad Master. And that really, I think, sums up a lot of what Jesus has to say here. But before we get to it, I want to get us thinking. I wonder if you can remember the very first thing you ever bought with your own money. Lollies. There you go. I bought, I was eight and I bought myself a sleeping bag. I'm an outward bound kind of a guy, and I was an outward bound kind of a kid. It was $40 at Kmart, and I had been saving up for some time. For the previous years, I'd been the generous recipient of 10 and 20 cent pieces as my pocket money. I'd collected them in one of those money boxes. It was one of those smiley faces, a yellow globe, which you kind of put the money into the mouth. I was very proud of it. And as it got heavier and heavier with my increasing coinage, I thought, 
that sleeping bag is soon going to be mine, entirely in 10 and 20 cent pieces. I went into Kmart. My mum was there with me. She said, which one do you want? And I pointed to it. It was a masterpiece, blue, warm, just the thing an eight-year-old boy would want. And I took it up there and I brought my money box and I undid the lid and I tipped it on the counter and money went everywhere. And there was this like 17-year-old girl behind the counter who must have cursed me under her breath. That sleeping bag, as precious as it was to me, took half an hour to choose and three quarters of an hour to pay for. It was a really important moment in my little life. It was my first step to which I would now call financial independence. And I would take many more, as I'm sure you have taken many more. The odd jobs around the house, washing the car, doing the dishes, to earn money for, as Annie pointed out, lollies. That first part-time job, or the holiday job, your first ever car, the first time you move into a flat with friends and live on cornflakes and instant coffee for a year. It sounds bad to us now, now that we've passed all those things, but they were all important steps, weren't they, to that increasing freedom that more money gave us. It was a wonderful thing. In fact, in many ways, when you think about it, that's really what money is, isn't it? Money equals freedom. I mean, we all know that money in itself is worth nothing. It's just plastic or coin. It represents something. It represents value, the value of goods. And yet there's another sense in which those goods themselves represent something further. They represent freedom. So when I buy food, that food gives me the freedom to not go hungry. When I buy clothes, I have the freedom not to be cold. When I rent my house, I rent the freedom from rain or sun or thieves. It represents freedom. And ask anyone who doesn't have money, and they'll tell you that that's exactly right. For those of us with money, we've got any number of choices. But ask the person in a rural village in Thailand whether they had much choice over what they had for breakfast or lunch or dinner. And they'll tell you, no, they had rice, just like they've had every other day of their life. Money equals freedom. And most of us in this room are very, very free. And the reason we're very free is because most of us in this room now, here in Kirribilli, in this little church, are very wealthy. And in the first place, I don't just mean relative to the world. I mean relative to Australia. Most of us in this room, maybe not even most, certainly many of us in this room, are by any standards wealthy, rich people. We live in nice houses, in exclusive suburbs. We drive new cars. We buy $400 pairs of jeans. We eat at restaurants once or twice a week. We go on interstate and international holidays frequently. We're wealthy. Now, of course, I know that doesn't apply to all of you now. In fact, if I can read your minds, I'm sure you're all working out how that doesn't apply to you. For some of you, that won't be a lie. For some of you, you really will be struggling. Or you might not be struggling, you just live a relatively modest existence. Some of you here really will be struggling. 
But all of us here, by world standards, are wealthy. The very fact that we live in a welfare state which can support us, we don't have the problems of worrying about race, or, I mean, sorry, about, um, uh, about going hungry or going sick unnecessarily or not having shelter over our heads. We are wealthy. And I want to tell you, that's actually not a bad thing. If you're worried that this sermon is going to be yet another exercise in middle-class guilt inducement, you can, you can wipe your brow. My intention and Jesus' intention here in this passage isn't to inspire 20 minutes worth of kind of well-meaning hand-wringing after the sermon before we all go off to dinner. No, it's not about that. Money is a good thing. God has made a good world full of good things and it is good to enjoy those good things. And it's good to enjoy the freedom those things brings. But I doubt that many of us need to hear that side of the coin. Some of us here will, the reverse snobs amongst us. Those of us who are poor by circumstance or perhaps by choice, so you might be a student, and you take no greater pleasure than looking down on those people who are more fortunate than yourselves, thinking that they must in some way be phony or fake or empty inside and that because you don't have much cash, you're a more genuine person. Some of you might need to hear that. But this sermon, and by that I mean the Sermon on the Mount, is not directed at you. Most of us don't need to hear that. Most of us don't need to hear that sermon, which you may have heard before elsewhere, that is 10% point and 90% caveat. The one that says, yes, of course, we must all as followers of Jesus look radically different to those around us, be a shining light to those in the world, but here are 15 reasons why it can't possibly apply to you nice people. Now, that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't give us that sermon. And yet he doesn't beat us about the head either. When you read the text, it is so refreshing and so subtle. And yet, as is so very like Jesus, so terribly, terribly incisive. See, I want to make really clear here that if you are one of those people who really does fit into the category of the wealthy, Jesus doesn't rebuke you. Jesus rebukes the greedy, but he warns the wealthy. Let me say that again. It's so important. Nowhere in the New Testament is being wealthy condemned. But there are special dangers that apply to being wealthy that we need warning about. And so whether you're wealthy here by Sydney standards or by the world standards, we need to hear that. And his warning is really just as simple as this. That money makes a good servant, but a terrible master. A wonderful servant and a terrible master. So let me get to my first point, which I'll simply call a bad master, because that's what verses 19 to 24 are about. Jesus starts here with a general warning about the danger of money. He's just been talking in the previous verses, chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, about rewards, about the reward of honour in front of other people. Now he gets to financial rewards. And he comes in with a simple warning. Look with me at verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. The warning is pretty simple. 
Don't put your trust in earthly goods because they are temporary. Now again, let me clarify. He's not saying that you shouldn't save up. He's not, why, he's not warning against people putting money in banks or things of that sort. I mean, he couldn't be. He'd be contradicting his own father's word in Proverbs 6. Let me read it to you. This is a fabulous, uh, this is a fabulous proverb. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come you on a ba- like a bandit, and scarcity like an armed man. No, God is in favour of being wise with your money. Even an ant can teach you financial advice in that regard. What it does mean is not to put your trust in those goods, not to rest your life's weight on those goods, because they'll vanish. Many of you may already know that they'll vanish because you lost hand over fist in the recent GFC. You might have seen your shares plummet in a totally unforeseen collapse. You might have a superannuation fund that was looking great and now suddenly means you need to work for another couple of years just to get by. Maybe your finances don't quite rise to the levels of shares and stocks and bonds, but I'm sure you all own clothes. Tell me this. What's the oldest piece of clothing you wear? That is, the piece of clothing that has managed to stand the test of time, that's managed to get away from the holes and the moths and the whatever it is. I think mine's about five years. You're going to put your trust in that? No, Jesus knows exactly what he's talking about. Don't put your trust in that. But then, having warned us, he doesn't just leave us hanging, as he never does. He doesn't surprisingly tell you to not get treasures. He just tells you to change currency. Look at verse 20. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. He tells you not to store up treasures here, but in heaven. Now, it's not exactly clear what he means by treasures in heaven here. He never defines it. He's been talking in the past verses in chapter 6 about rewards in heaven, and I'd be very surprised if it doesn't mean that. But in the context of this gospel, I take it probably means that your treasures in heaven are the values of the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you an example. In chapter 19, you you needn't turn to it, Jesus tells the story of a rich young man who comes to him and says, how can I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, how many of the commandments have you kept? And he rattles a lot off. And then he says, okay, I want you to do this. Sell everything you have and you will inherit treasures in heaven. Now we'll get to what that means in a little bit. But I think what it means is Invest in kingdom values. Follow me unerringly. Take to heart and do the things that I have been preaching about in this Sermon on the Mount. Store up those things. Do those things. And you'll have an investment in heaven that lasts forever. 
It's not saying that those are the things that get you to heaven. No, Jesus is very clear. It's only through his death and resurrection and ascension that you come to heaven. But because of his grace, wouldn't we want to live in gratitude? Wouldn't we want to mimic the kinds of things that we'll see in heaven? Isn't that our character? Now, it's all pretty easy to agree with at this point, isn't it? We all think to ourselves, yes, of course, life is not really all about earthly goods. And, of course, I could give them up whenever I wanted to, if Jesus wanted me to. But this is where Jesus gives the real warning to us. And it's this. Money is harder to give up than we initially think. We think that we could give up things just like that, as if we could just shed them from our hands. And yet, when we try, we find them sticking to us. They seem to stick to our fingers and... It's hard to give away. You see that there in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see what he's saying? If you really love money, if money is what you're all about, that that's where your heart is set on, well, then that's where your heart will stay. If you're really committed to that, then you'll be committed to that. You'll do what you love. And yet if those things decay... Well, what's to say that your heart won't decay with them where they are? But if you set your treasures in heaven, if you live the life that God would have you live, of Christ honouring, well, that's where your heart will be also. I think that's what he's on about in verses 22 and 23. Let me read them to you again. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It seems difficult to see exactly what he's on about here, why he suddenly starts changing the topic from money to this darkness and light and eyes. And I think his point is generally pretty clear, that we are to keep a one-eyed devotion to radical service of God. But I think he raises it here because our eyes are particularly susceptible to temptation to put our trust in things on earth. We see the house or the car or the funky clothes and we want them. I remember being invited to, to lunch by a, a very wealthy, by any standards, really, uh, person from this church who really understood this passage because they're also terribly generous. Beautiful house, walked in there. Well, I was breaking the 10th commandment for pretty much the entire afternoon. I've been to many people's houses, my own in particular. The details of your houses are relatively sketchy. It's as if I have taken photographs of that place. The harbour view, the beautiful sofa, even the lunch. Your eyes make an impression. You will look at what you love. And if you love money, that will flood into you. See, Jesus brings it to the point, as he always does, in verse 24. Cut straight to the chase. You see, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, here's the kicker. Money is stickier than you think. And the thing that is so good when it is your servant 
can so easily become your master. Rather than you calling the shots over it, it calls the shots over you and takes your heart where God doesn't want it to go. Many of you will already have felt the creeping fingers of slavery to money. You suddenly become wealthy, maybe through an important job or an inheritance. And all of a sudden, you've got something more to worry about. Well, you never worried about how you'd be provided for. Now you have thousands, hundreds of thousands in the bank or in your house, and you lie awake, wondering what will happen on the finance market, whether thieves will indeed break in, and whether my insurance will cover it. Or you'll be mortgaged up to the hilt, up to the hilt in the very most expensive house your wage could afford. Feeling you have to do that because that's just how the world works, isn't it? But then, of course, because you've mortgaged yourself up to the hilt, you have to stay in that job, which demands that you be there 70, 80 hours a week. Don't tell me you haven't feel trapped by your lifestyle and feel somehow that actually the house and the pay packet and the clothes and the lifestyle to which you have ever so gradually become accustomed. You didn't always live like this. Sometimes there were times when you were glad just to share a latte with your girlfriend and when it was okay to just have cornflakes for lunch. You were just as happy then. It just takes ten times as much money to make you as happy. But it's crept up on you as your standard of living has grown and grown and grown until suddenly you realise, well, I'm trapped. I work this appalling job which keeps me from my family, which keeps me from my friends, so I can pay for a house I'm only ever there to see in the night time. Now, of course I'm oversimplifying, but isn't there an element of truth in that to us? Oh, I'm trapped in this job. No, you chose the job. No, I'm trapped in the job because I've got to pay for this house. No, no, you chose that house. You could live in another suburb. You can do something about it. It's called selling. Oh, but that would mean I wouldn't be able to... Well, well, yeah, that's right. You wouldn't be able to. You have to make a choice. But can you remember what it felt like when you didn't live here? When maybe you didn't have the latest X, Y, or Z, but you never felt the miss of it because you never had it. You never felt burdened by it. See, I wonder sometimes if, if this slavery to cash, to money, to lifestyle, to prestige, if we even notice it. And so, I think the answer is to live simply. I think one of the best ways to combat this is to get really good at giving money away. Let me read to you an astonishing article from the Sydney Morning Herald. It was there on the 5th of November. Some of you may have read it or not. It's very brief. A Canadian couple who donated almost 10.2 Canadian dollars, million dollars, that's $10 million in our money, in lottery winnings to various organisations in their community say they're just plain country folks who don't need more than they have. Alan and Violet Large said that they won $10.9 in, in a July 14 lotto 649 draw and decided to bank 2% for a rainy day and give away the rest. After taking care of their family, they donated almost 98% of their prize to churches, fire departments, cemeteries and the Red Cross in Lower Truro, as well as hospitals where Violet who has cancer, has undergone treatment. 
Alan Large, 75, says after retiring from a 30-year career as a welder, he and his wife were happy with what they had and the way their life was going. They don't sound like slaves to me. They sound like free, free people. And they're free because they know that that money will just go. And if it doesn't go, they will soon. They're happy to give it away. I think there is a real argument for Christians to live more simply than their neighbours. Of course, we don't want our houses to be so scungy or our clothes so dilapidated that we end up putting people off. That when we invite people for dinner, there seems to be this radical disconnect with our guests who see that, well, these people are weird. No, no, we want to have money to be hospitable. Jesus quite boldly says, use the money I give you to make friends. But I think there is a case to being different, isn't there? I mean, isn't what Jesus has been going on about in chapter 5, how free we are from the law? So we don't have to give 10% anymore. Oh, wonderful, we say, 5% is enough. Well, why not 30? Why couldn't we give away 30% of our income to charity or to church, to the cause of the gospel? I'm just putting it out there. Of course you don't have to, but you could do. We can all think of millions of reasons why we needn't do this. That's fine. Many of them will be valid. But why not just for once? Think of one reason why you could do it. You might just find yourself that little bit freer. But secondly, and much more briefly, we see Jesus having encouraged us. He comforts us. Because this all seems a bit risky, doesn't it? Changing masters from money to God just makes us anxious. Well, it's all very well to say that I shouldn't build up my treasures in heaven, I, or treasures on earth, I should put them in heaven, but my rent still stays here on earth. How am I going to look after myself? Won't I just be swallowed by more worries? Well, Jesus has seen you coming. Look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? You see, his point is quite clear. I will look after you. I'm a master you can trust. And to reassure us, he gives us some arguments. Look at verses 26 to 30. Look at the birds of the, f- birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not mo- much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. You know, I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, you can actually look to God and trust him. The argument here is, is pretty simple. Look at birds. Look at grass. God looks after them. Think how much more important you are to him than grass or birds. Join the dots. Isn't he going to look after you? Martin Luther, the great 16th century church reformer, put it rather quaintly and sweetly when he put it like this. You see, he is making the birds our schoolmasters and teachers. It is a great and abiding disgrace to us that in the gospel... A helpless sparrow should become a theologian, 
and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you are listening to a nightingale, therefore, you are listening to an excellent preacher. It is as if he were saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He has made heaven and earth, and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. He really does care for you. You can become his servant and trust that he'll care for you. Let me just make two points about that before we close, though, because it might seem glib and it might seem unrealistic. The first is this. Notice the things that he promises to look after us in, not the trimmings of life, not the cars, not the jeans, not the houses in exclusive suburbs. No, he promises food and drink and shelter. They are the things God promises to look after us in. It would be very dangerous to believe, as I'm afraid some churches have taught, that if only we were to put our trust in God and give all our money away, that it would in some way return to us tenfold. Sometimes that part from Ecclesiastes 10, cast your bread upon the waters and it will come back to you tenfold, is torn right out of context as if it's some kind of prosperity teaching that all we need to do is give everything away and God is guaranteed a thousand percent return. Many, many people have abandoned wisdom and been shipwrecked on that kind of teaching because they've misunderstood what God promises. God's main thing in life isn't to make you rich. God's main thing in life is to make you like his son and he will give you everything you need to do it. But what about, you say, what about the people who really don't even have that, who really are hungry, who are faithful Christian people? Doesn't this don't worry thing seem all a bit glib? Well, first of all, let me say to you, I don't think he's addressing here people with clinical anxiety. This is not a verse to become guilty about if you are someone who suffers medically from worry. Jesus is not talking to you. And I think also it's comparative, not total. Look at verses 31 to 33. So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly fathers know that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I think he's saying, seek God's kingdom above all things, and you can trust me to look after these details. It won't happen every day. There will be days when you may go hungry. Many, many Christians in this world do. And yet they do it. And somehow, by God's incredible grace, they do it gladly. Because they are seeking God's kingdom first. Knowing that he will eventually care for their needs. Either in this world or in the next. And yet, those caveats aside, I want to say that God does really look after his own. Countless testimonies come through of Christians on the, the brink of disaster being saved through ways that are explicable only through his power. Sometimes his power being worked through wealthy Christians who recognize their need and give. So we need to let go of our anxieties and hand ourselves over to God 
Because in the end, he's the only one who can look after them anyway. Therefore, verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Money, it is a great gift. It is a great servant. But it is a poor master. For it will crumble in your hand before you can even look back at it. But God, who cares for grass and sparrows, is a good master who will look after us. And we can know this because we have seen God for ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ who never asked us to do anything he wouldn't do himself. Let me close with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let me pray. God and Father, we're so grateful for the good things you have given us. We thank you for our wealth and the freedom it gives us. But we pray, please help us to remember that this is not wrong, this is a blessing from you, but it is dangerous. We pray that we would keep money in its place as our servant. Please help us to keep you as our master and you as the one who directs all of our life, including our finances. And thank you for the promise that because of that, you will look after us. Amen.